I listen to the podcast, of course. Yeah, do you do you like you listen to it so it's not um, completely offensive to the uh, to the British worldview. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll confess, I was not uh, I was not already familiar with with, with your work, but um, I've I've listened to a few episodes since you contact contacted me, and um, yeah, can confirm not offensive to the British worldview. <laughs> good, good to know. Okay, good. <laughs> Good, good, good to know we passed the muster of the Anglo world. <laughs> well, um, welcome to the Trillbillies, everybody. I am one of your co-hosts, Terrence, uh, joined by Mr. Tom Sexton, of course. Yo, yo. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about the music industry. Um on on this show, we've we've joked a lot about how easy it is to kind of latch on to a specific data point or like a story or an anecdote that can that kind of like speaks to the specific kind of hell that we live in, you know. And for me personally, one that I keep coming back to, and obviously the audience and Tom will have heard me say this about a million times. But it's it's this story about how all of these major artists of yesteryear, like Bob Dylan and Bruce Springsteen, uh, Stevie Nicks, Paul Simon, you you name them, all your favorite Motley Crue, <laughs> all your favorite hit makers, um, they are now selling portions or all of their song catalogs to either a major label or a quote unquote song fund, about which we will. You know, we'll discuss more in just a second. Um, you know, this is, I guess, maybe the reason why it's so dark and dystopic for me is because I'm a musician. Um, I don't make a living playing music, obviously, but uh, I do have a lot of friends that do. And I've just noticed that it's becoming increasingly very difficult to make a living from this industry. Um, not only just because of the hit everyone took in 2020 with the pandemic, but also just because of what we're going to be discussing today. Um, so to help us do that and to, to help us get like a more comprehensive portrait of, you know, the political economy of the music industry, we've enlisted the help of writer Rich Woodall, who wrote two really good, in my opinion, two really good and incisive pieces for The Baffler, you know, Rep and the Baffler, both Tom and I have written for them as well, um, about the state of the uh, industry. Um, Rich is, is calling in from the bright and sunny island of uh, e- England, as I understand it. Um, Rich, how's it going over uh, on your side of the pond? Uh, yeah, it's it's bright and sunny, um, like you said. Good. Yeah, can't complain. Good, good. Um well, what we're going to be discussing today isn't so bright and sunny, I feel like. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Un- unlike Mother England, not so bright and sunny. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, so, like, let's just start out with some of the basics. Um, you've written a lot about this quote-unquote song fund called, and I love the name, and then when I first saw the name, I got really confused. The name is Hypnosis. It's spelled weird. H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S. Like like Gnosis, like Gnostic almost, you know. It's got the same spelling as the infamous design, British design collective from like the 70s and 80s that did all of the great like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd album covers. And when I first started reading your articles, I was like, wait, what the fuck? I was like, did they start like did they become like an asset management firm (laughs) like what happened here (laughs) um but no there's no relation apparently um as far as i understand it Um, well they i mean there is there's no um commercial relation but um supposedly merc mercuriadis who's the 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 head of hypnosis knows the uh, i think he's called storm ferguson the guy who's behind the um the LP cover designers, uh, you know, their their buddies, and 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 Storm gave his blessing for for Merck to to use to use the name in in his uh, in his new venture. So wow, uh, there is there is a sort of another depressing wrinkle to, to yeah, the story. right. Like we we all sell out in our own <laughs> specific ways. Can't 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 li- can't 
can't ride off those Pink Floyd Dark Side of the Moon residuals forever, I guess, can you? <laughs> um, I guess not anymore since people aren't buying hard copies of albums anymore. So in some ways, it's kind of metaphorical, right? It's like the the transmutation from Hypnosis, the album cover designer, to Hypnosis, the, as we will discover, like the IP acquirer of, you know, songs as an asset fund uh, class. Anyways, you've written a lot about hypnosis, which is just like hoovering up a lot of these rights to songs left and right. Um, who are they and why are they doing this? Why are they buying song rights? So they were founded in 2018 by the aforementioned uh, Merck uh, Mucuriadis, who's a former executive at Sanctuary Records label and was also a manager. He, like, he managed uh, Guns N' Roses, uh, Beyonce, I think, and, and others. Really? Th that's fascinating. I didn't know that. N not, a bad, not a bad clientele list. <laughs> yeah, well, that's very much sort of part of the kind of unique cachet that he brings to the, um, he brings to the role because Hypnosis are not the only song fund and they're, they're, they're not the first either. Um, uh, I mean, a, a song fund is, is a company that uh, raises investment capital and issues shares. And they, they say to their shareholders, we're going to take your money and we're going to buy the rights to popular songs and use the, the, the royalty streams from those songs as the basis of this investment vehicle. And, and because the, because the royalties from these songs will remain stable and in fact grow over time it will it will grow the the value of your shares and, and and provide a nice dividend as well so that that's that's sort of the business model like like hypnosis kind of stand out because partly because of Merck because he's this sort of he's this kind of like buff chrome domed dude with this like background in the music industry and he, he has this sort of he has this sort of pitch to musicians, which is that like he's the guy who you can sell your songs to, and and he'll he understands, you know, he understands musicians, he understands art. He's he's not going to like I don't know, take like Neil Young and like license him, you know, to like a arms fair or or like Raytheon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Raytheon. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's the sort of the kind of unique pitch that they that they they offer to people. They're 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 sort of they're the, the people who kind of really understand music and understand artists and and that that's going to shape the how they use the music that they acquire yeah, i watched an interview with him you know it really breaks my heart because hypnosis yeah was started by this guy mark mercuriitis i guess that's how you say his name i'm not, not entirely sure but like it's also co-founded by nile rogers who big fan of chic you know big fan of nile and his work maybe uh, the best guitar player ever at least in that conversation yeah yeah um who who wrote uh diana ross's i'm coming out because he was taking a piss at a uh, a drag show and noticed that the the two um queen drag queens on both sides of him were dressed as diana ross and so he was like all right like <laughs> <laughs> it's like I love Nile Rodgers, but, you know, I guess my man saw an opportunity and couldn't say no, because ultimately that's what this is. Hypnosis is an exciting opportunity to profit off of, yeah, the songs of yesteryear. Not only the songs, but, like, the feelings they evoke. Is the, is, is the, is the rationale for this sort of thing basically like, okay, we can... Um, give all these sort of aging artists like this big lump sum up, up front but with the rise of streaming we could just sort of eat in perpetuity off of the catalogs or whatever percentage of the catalogs that they own i'm not sure like you know how all that breaks down but like i made the joke earlier about motley Crue, but i saw that they had also sold their catalog for like a shockingly high number in my mind it was like 150 million or something like that something like that that's like can you really eat off uh, who you gonna call Doctor Feel Good? Like they had some good ballads. I guess I shouldn't <laughs> shit on them too hard, but but you know what I'm saying. It's like it's like 150 million for kind of a I as don't a know. 
as I've stated before, a lot of cocaine and heroin went into those albums, Tom. That's a lot of overhead. You know what I mean? That's so like, <laughs> true. You got to recoup it on the back end 30 years later. <laughs> yeah, like, I think Motley Crue had to pay out of their royalties for a lot of the, the drugs that were consumed. It's a bummer. Um, during their heyday. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. So most of most of the, the musicians who are, are selling up, or the, the, the kind of high-profile ones, are coming towards the end of their careers. They might have even stopped recording new material or, you know, really, realistically not have that many more albums in them and are kind of increasingly perhaps averse to the idea of touring although yeah i mean i don't know bob dylan doesn't seem to nothing seems to 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 stop him but right um, basically approaching retirement and it's it's the prospect of this massive payday and it's also kind of smart estate planning because it's much easier to figure out what you're going to do with like a lump sum of cash in terms of you know passing it on to your heirs or putting it in trusts or or you know, hiding it from the tax man, then it, it's much easier to do that than it is to do with these um, royalty streams, which are kind of, you know, snarled up in this incredibly complicated music industry. The the, the fees that get that are getting paid, they're, they're based on sort of multiples of, of what the annual uh, value of the um, record collection is. And uh, hypnosis have really sort of pushed the envelope in terms of, paying these really big multiples like we're talking like 16 18 times what their what the catalog makes in 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 a year as a lump sum and a lot of them seem insane to me like the idea that um the idea that like the value of barry manilow's catalog is gonna is gonna is gonna grow because that's that's it that's the the supposition is that this this shit's going to be more valuable in the future. That right. that seems deranged to me. Yeah, in this interview that I think you linked to in one of your pieces, Merck compares it like as an asset class. He actually compares it to gold or oil. Like he says, um, effectively, what I did, and this was my mission, was to demonstrate that these predictable and reliable songs were as investable as gold or oil, and as you say, with this desire for uncorrelated assets, even better because they're predictable and reliable. If Donald Trump were to wake up tomorrow morning and do something that was metaphorically the same as pushing the red button, this was back in 2018 when everybody thought Trump was going to nuke the world. Um, if times are good, <laughs> if times are good, people are celebrating with music. If times are challenging, people are escaping with music. So music is one of those th few things that regardless of what's going on in the world is constantly being consumed. And like as you and others have pointed out, like with the creation of these streaming services and everything, now they have a perfect medium through which to like stream these songs and you know uh, gather the royalties from them in perpetuity, and then uh, obviously fulfill the obligations to their shareholders of a group like Hypnosis. You know, it's it's weird. One of the things that I thought was really fascinating was like. Merck, like the way he describes sort of why this is happening like th that was a very interesting interview that you linked with it was um investment trust insider citywire.com this is like he basically just sort of like blatantly explains why he's interested in this as like an investment sort of like asset class but i mean like his description of why i thought was pretty interesting he says in the early 80s, 90% of the artists you would sign were artists that wrote their own songs, performed their own songs, had a very good idea of who they were, who they might become, what their album cover should look like. Maybe they would want to hire Hypnosis to do that. What their stage show <laughs> should look like. So my job was to, number one, believe in them and make other people believe. And then, number two, put a strategy in place to bring those ideas to fruition. He's talking about when he got started in the 80s, when this was the case. Today, 90% of the artists that are being signed are really talented people, but ultimately the end game is fame, and whether that fame comes from singing someone else's song or singing a co-written song, or whether it comes from social media or whether it comes from TV talent com competitions like The X Factor, 
If you're Zara Larson and you have access to hit songs, you're top of the charts. If you're Iggy Azalea and five years ago you had the biggest song in the world with a song called Fancy, but for whatever reason you no longer have access to hit songs, you're nowhere. So basically he's saying... Playboy Cardi. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Getting her pregnant and leaving her. Right, like, was that shade he was throwing? For whatever reason, you no longer have Yeah, for whatever, yeah. Yeah. Um, But, like, it's an interesting thing. Basically, he's saying that, like, music now has kind of been taken... I mean, there's a lot of reasons for why this is happening. Uh, But one of them, I think, is, like, that the music industry has kind of been taken over by that same sort of parasocial influencer... um, impulse that has obviously taken over all the other entertainment industries and so like now artists just go on singing competitions and sing the songs that were popular 20 30 years ago and everyone gets paid off of that and this process what it does is it actually disincentivizes the production of new music new original music could you talk a little bit about that rich like about how about how like this this overall process makes it more difficult and unlikely for new music to be uh invested in created marketed uh etc yeah absolutely i mean i think the unspoken subtext in that sort of quote from from Merck is that the modern music economy is set up in a way that really disempowers artists even even relative to previously, I mean, it, it, it's always been bad, but the, the way that the, the kind of streaming economy works uh, makes it really difficult for performing artists and, and songwriters to support themselves from the music that they, uh, or the songs that they, they create. Spotify, for instance, or, or kind of streaming platforms in general have helped kind of create this system that's sort of skewed towards the monetization of of catalog which is the sort of industry term for songs that are you know more than i think 18 months or two years old you know like 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 you were saying it's created this environment where you know rather than having to reissue this stuff like make like greatest hits collections it's sort of permanently there on the shelf like ready for people to listen to and i think today like like catalog music accounts for something like 75% 75% of sales and streams, which is vastly, vastly more than than even sort of like 10, kind of like 15 years ago. And that suits the kind of big rights holders, like sort of record companies, because they own the the rights to most of this old music. They they acquired most of it, you know, decades ago on through contracts, which pay an extremely low royalty rate to the musicians who who created it so they they really get to keep the lion's share of the the profits so that that created like a very sort of like powerful incentive for for these companies to promote and monetize old content and hypnosis and the other song funds are kind of they're sort of like latest like kind of logical consequence of that process really yeah because there's other song funds than just hypnosis right and like Hypnosis itself, like some of its investors, is like Morgan Stanley, like one of their investors, or or JP Morgan. I don't know. I know there's some like large banks like that are invested in them. They've been increasingly attracting Wall Street money. The the really big deal that they've made uh, sort of towards the end of last year was a a billion dollar partnership with Blackstone. Oh boy! Wow. They're they're the sort of big corporate landlords who um you know buy cheap housing and uh, drive the rents and evict people and, and, and stuff like that. In a way, yeah, it's fascinating. Like, in a way, this is kind of, it's kind of a similar process. Like, they're setting themselves up as, like, rentiers, right? Like, they can just, in the same way, they can, like, create this market to funnel, um, you know, money upwards, profits upwards, or surplus upwards from real estate. They can also do that with, uh, intellectual rights in this case songs absolutely yeah it's it's effectively rent-seeking behavior you know one thing digital music the sort of rise of digital music has done is is, is for major labels particularly you know i'm talking about the really big ones it's really reduced their margins you know because they don't have to pay for the manufacture they don't have to pay for distribution 
that I have to pay for local A&R. And it's also kind of, in, in, in a way, sort of necessitated touring for the artist as like the primary way they make their money too, right? Because like it used to be the case that you would tour to sell records, right? And merch and whatever. And I think the merch is still in play. But now you make the music so that you have something to tour off of rather <laughs> right. than the other way around. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. And that's that's why COVID has been such a such a disaster for um for musicians because it, it's it's destroyed their um their, their main source of income. And it it's really it's really interesting, like the the price of streaming subscriptions has stayed flat basically since you know since Spotify arrived it's it's still like you know nine you know nine ninety nine a month or whatever um but if you compare which you know obviously is an incredible deal for like you know all the music um but if you compare that to the what's happened to to ticket prices for live gigs you know you can see what what effect that has had you know sort of as a knock-on on the these other aspects of the music economy yeah, and then now, like you got outfits like Live Nation, like buying up even the smallest venues and sort of mid-sized cities all over the world, and really dominating that sphere of it too. Yeah, absolutely. It's fascinating. I think like it. It seems to me that obviously this isn't just relegated to the music industry. This sort of financialization of the creation of you know, mass media and culture, because like, obviously what's going on here, what we're describing is the squeezing of IP from the last 50 years for, you know, as much profits and surplus as they can get out of it, which is honestly what's going on in the movie industry and in TV as well, right? Like with the superhero movies, but also just with all the reboots and all the other things like, and I don't think it's necessarily because people are out of ideas or people are afraid to take creative risks. I think it just shows that it's just a safe, a quote unquote safe investment in general. So it's not like so much a, a, an aversion to creative risk. It's kind of more an aversion to financial risk in a way. Right. Yeah. Like if you have a known franchise, you don't have to spend as much money advertising. You kind of cut your overhead. It's just like a uh, a known and loved deal. That's why, I like, particularly in horror. You see, like all the Halloween reboots and the yeah. I think it's something to do with the platform, the sort of platformization of culture as well. Because I mean, it's this is it's a bit different with with movies because in music, the thing about music streaming is that every every platform has basically the same content. But with with kind of movies and stuff, when people right. are sort of making their decisions about you know, am I going to subscribe to Disney Plus or, right. or, or Amazon Prime? They're not they're not going to be like, oh, what's this this like groundbreaking new show that i've never heard of like i'll sign up the platform they're like what right you know what, what recognizable ip have they got that's going to bring me onto this uh, like jay-z tried to do that with title like they tried to do a kind of like more curated sort of uh proprietary streaming platform with title in the same way that they were doing this with like hulu and stuff and it didn't really uh, work, I guess. I don't know. I don't know how Title's doing. As, as I, I think he sold off his shares fairly quick into the, the venture. Right. I see. <laughs> yeah. um, but this kind of, I mean, so, all right. So we have this set of circumstances. We have like what we are staring at now. In your piece, you kind of go back through the history of maybe the last 30 years of the music industry and i i've actually you go back even further than that because you know you talk about the difference in between like publishing rights and master rights i wanted to talk a little bit about the music industry as it stood on the eve of the sort of file sharing digital revolution in the late 90s early 2000s um because it seems to me like that in that moment might be some of the clues to how we got to where we are today. So, um, yeah, so I don't know, Rich, I don't know if you want to talk about, you know, rights, like the intellectual right, copyright aspect of this, or if you want to talk about like the big three record companies. But just generally, I kind of just want to talk about the situation that they found themselves in in the 90s with just reaping in money hand over fist with 
the you know the apotheosis of the commercialization of music with the compact disc right um so maybe 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 we could just talk a little bit about yeah like the big three like who are the big three uh music labels and and uh and and why were they unable to really unify around a way to ride the digital wave that you know Napster and some of these other platforms proposed so the big three music labels are warner sony and universal music um they they control around about two-thirds of the 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 kind of global music industry although i should say that like when you hear any figures about the music industry like they're always contested like people are always arguing about them because you know they they tend to be based on on, on uh, sort of information that's kind of not always in the public eye and depending on sort of which side of the argument you find yourself on you know people have have different figures and the, I mean the, the major labels are funny because you know when they're talking to their to potential investors they like to they like to boost their what their market share is but when they're when they're sort of talking to I don't know kind of like regulators about their relationship with the streaming platforms they like to sort of play down what they're <laughs> Their, their market share is um, right. but they they control the they control the, the the majority of the market and and so most importantly for this discussion i think they control the majority of of, of the music catalogs i think yeah i think we, pro- we probably have to like at least sort of sketch this distinction between master rights and publishing rights and music it's it's just disgustingly complicated and so i'll, I'll be sort of oversimplifying and i'll probably i'll probably get some things wrong as well because um, <laughs> i don't i don't think there's anyone who 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 understands this 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 shit really it's incredibly byzantine uh, yes yeah so so say we're talking about streaming right you know you're on you're on spotify and you you, you play a song there are two sort of baskets of of rights that are associated with with that stream. Um, there's master rights which apply to like a specific recording of a song, um, and there's publishing rights which sort of apply to the kind of like the idea of the song, I guess. You know, the 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 the, the lyrics and the, um, the the you know the chords or the the kind of notation or or what have you. A lot of the time, these belong to different parties, you know. So, you know, it might be in in some cases like the the recording artist is also the writer of the song, in which case though they sort of theoretically control both the, the the master rights and the publishing rights. But you know, in cases where the the singer isn't the person who wrote the song, then the the songwriter gets the publishing rights and the the artist it, it, uh, gets the master rights. Talking about the, the major labels, the major labels are the, the sort of number one owners of master rights. And the way that they acquired those is through record contracts. Um, uh, so obviously contracts are arrangements between, you know, sort of private arrangements between parties. So they, they vary a lot, but there's a kind of like general template for how major label record contracts have worked Um historically and that's that the recording artist hands over their rights to the label in return for an advance so the label gets to collect the royalties on the on the record and and they get the right to sort of say who who gets to reproduce and distribute that that music and then the they give the they give the musician like a percentage of the royalties um, which the musician has to use to pay back their advance before they start to see any right i've heard some horror stories about this like terrence and i have a friend that was signed to sub pop records and he was telling us that like in the process of like you know working out their deal and cutting their first record for sub pop and everything that when when (laughs) when the bill came due and payable so to speak like all the little times they had wine them and dined them to sign them they had like (laughs) put that all those meals on their advance and everything and they're like what the hell is this and it got so bad that they had to make friends with the guy at the sub pop warehouse to go and get some like stock of their records to take out on tour to sell because sub pop would not let them like have any records or anything well it's like it's like the prince quote 
that you put in your article. Like, unless you own the masters, like the masters own you, basically. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, what happens? What's happened sort of over time is that as the as the record industry is consolidated, because they, you know, the, the in the sort of nineties and and earlier there were, you know, there were more major labels, but the, the industry's gone through this process of consolidation where we've we've ended up with the big three. And through that consolidation, they've come to own all of these master rights, which are sort of, which are sort of signed over to, to various different record labels through these contracts down the years. And that these sort of vast collections of IP gives them like tremendous leverage. It, it is the source of their their power in the industry these days, really. Yeah, and, and as you point out in the article, like <clears throat> in the nineties, they used to be able to control basically every aspect of the production, creation, and distribution of the music, like the physical distribution of it. Like, um, for example, CDs, CD manufacturer. Like you could you could have a very cheap physical product costs like two dollars to make and then mark it up and sell it for like fifteen dollars and like the profits that they reaped were just astronomical um but like streaming kind of presented them with a new a, a new problem right like you know and everybody talks about ted talked about it i remember people talking about it a lot back then um but it definitely seems now in the last few years like I think there was a law that was signed by Trump in 2018. I think it's called like the MMA or something. Like it definitely feels like the record companies, the big three, in coordination with Spotify and these other streaming platforms, have definitely figured out a way to once again regain a foothold, reap in maximum uh, profits. But this time, they have disempowered the performer or the uh, songwriters even more than they were before um and and as you point out in your article it's actually i didn't even know this but like in some of these deals like the deal that sony worked out with spotify like sony gets like a certain like they, they have a certain stake in spotify itself so it's like they're almost like rigging the industry to you know, it's it's in a in a similar uh, fashion of them like being able to control every aspect of distribution in the '90s with the CD. They've sort of been able to recreate that, but now they've they have a certain stake in Spotify itself, and they can work out this sort of minute details because Spotify never turns a profit. They're basically at the mercy of these big three, right? Like they've never posted a profit. Isn't that correct? Annually, no, no. They've like oh, just there've been sort of certain quarters where they where they have, but annually, no. But they're actually, I think, some analysts projecting that 2022 will be will be the year where Spotify finally does turn a profit. But <laughs> their, I mean, their business model is has been basically like Uber, really, or any kind of gig economy like tech company, which is to come into a market backed by a shitload of venture capital because they can afford to operate at a loss. They can offer whatever like service or product they're selling, at, you know, below cost, and you know, use that to to kind of capture market share. And they keep keep getting more and more investment on the promise that of, of future growth. And that that's always been the sort of mo from Spotify. That, you know, investors keep putting money into them because uh, they they promise that they'll they'll keep growing and i mean that's why they can never offer they can never offer a good deal for for musicians um, unless one makes them because any any more money that they that they, they give out to musicians is going to eat into their growth well to the extent that okay so as we pointed out earlier this situation this kind of like financialization of the intellectual property of songs has created this situation where new music isn't really being made. I mean, it is, obviously. I mean, I, I still listen to quite a bit of new music. But it definitely seems in the aggregate, I think a lot of these streaming platforms and the rights holder, whether it's Hypnosis or Sony, have been able to figure out that 
the vast majority of streams, not the vast majority, but maybe like 60, I think the last time I checked is like 60% of streams that occur on these platforms are of songs that are, I think, as you pointed out earlier, older than 18 months or so. Um, so it definitely seems like people are listening to older music. There could be all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, maybe it is, as Merck said, and people are scared or they're happy and they just want to relive the good old times and, you know, they don't really value new music or whatever. If if you're, say, a one-hit wonder, a Millie Vanilli or, you know, something like that, like streaming actually could kind of give you a second lifeline. Yeah. Honestly. <laughs> definitely, because as we pointed out earlier, like... If you were a one-hit wonder in the, let's say you had a you had a big song in the seventies, uh, and that was it. But then once you got into the nineties, obviously the royalties for that weren't coming in, and the only way you could get the royalties was as if for some reason it got added to some, uh, you know, classic rock radio um, <laughs> uh, playlist or whatever. You know, you get some royalties from that. But mostly people would have to own the physical copies. But now you've got the streaming platforms. And I do think that it's not so much um it's not so much an issue of people only wanting to listen to old music. I think a big issue here and an article that you linked to in your piece pointed this out. I think it was by Liz Pelly if I if I'm getting her name correct. Is that a big issue here is the creation of playlists on these streaming platforms. Like with the playlist with curation these streaming platforms are able to kind of dictate what people listen to regardless because like let's just say like you're in a mood it's kind of funny like a lot of them prioritize the chill playlist like everything's chill on spotify it's like chill chill beats to whatever (laughs) to study to (laughs) um but like you can kind of curate what people listen to um in a way so in some ways the game is rigged in that way and um, and they but, do some rigging like that, like to get on the splash page of Spotify, right? Like certain artists can finagle ways to like get more visibility in that way. And then there's everything from like, you know, the the streaming farms. I think I heard T-Pain talk about like you could tell when an artist is really putting up numbers because like their streams will be in like, you know, Los Angeles, Chicago, New York, etc. And when they're manufacturing those numbers, those places are like Bozeman, Montana. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> an artist has 16 million streams in uh, Boise, Idaho. Hobbs, New Mexico. What yeah, the right. Fuck? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it is very interesting. Um, you they, know, say that just because there's ways to game it. Yeah. There, yeah, there certainly is. It, it's it's extremely crooked. I mean, you 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 mentioned you mentioned earlier on the, the sort of relationship that the major labels have with with Spotify. So, yeah, for instance, it's it's true that I think back in two thousand and eight, the the big three all acquired equity in Spotify. So you know, there was a sense in which they were sort of licensing their own songs to themselves, right? Um, <laughs> which is a which is a crazy thought. They've, they've actually been selling off those stakes on the whole. I think Universal still has theirs, but, but Warner and Sony might have divested themselves. I, I can't remember. But the point is that it, it's not really the shares, which is the mechanism through which they sort of exercise their influence on Spotify. It, it's, it's the catalogue. Um, because, you know, if, if one of those labels takes, their, takes their, their music away from Spotify, that's, that's game over. So... It, this means that they they have a lot of they have a lot of influence and there's a lot of kind of opaque dealing that that kind of goes on behind the scenes. So things like yeah things like playlist placements and deals for ad space and 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 stuff like this. I mean Spotify. <laughs> this is a slightly separate issue, but Spotify runs this is 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 trying to run this thing called discovery mode where artists are offered a lower royalty rate in exchange for 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 more publicity so oh, that might be goodness. that might be what you're thinking of um like in terms of getting yourself on the page like if you're prepared to be paid even less that yeah that's like how, how do you go lower <laughs> which um which is is payola is is you know yeah. is, is is you know the the, the the same thing that people were prosecuted for you know paying paying radio stations to to, to play songs back in the 70s 
another sort of mad Spotify thing is this this thing of producing like fake music. So they'll produce these like sort of sounds alike artists will be like a bunch of like they'll get like a bunch of like Swedish guys in the studio and get them to like record a country song or something. <laughs> and then, and then put it put it on the top of a of a country music playlist. Matt, seven Swedish guys in a room in like Malmo make an astonishingly <laughs> large amount of the music we listen to anyway. <laughs> you know. It's it's fascinating. It, it it kind of creates this situation where like you don't even know what's real and what's not. Just like with all these other just like with all content in general, like the viral videos you see and stuff, you're just like Yeah, yeah. There's a, a really uh um a really great blogger called Damon Krakowski. I mean, he's a musician. He, he has a band called Damon and Naomi, and he was in uh, Galaxy 500, the sort of um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of indie sort of slowcore band from the early 90s. Um, he, he, has a, he has one of the best kind of blogs about the, the modern music industry, and, and he, had, he had a post about how Spotify is a form of misinformation, basically. It's, it's it, you know, that's so incredible. As you point out in your article, like you quote from Mark Fisher, and regardless of how you feel about Mark Fisher and his like sort of diagnosis of the culture industry, or whatever, in the mid 2000s, it doesn't really matter how you feel about him because Merck, Mercuriitis, and the guys at Hypnosis have basically banked their entire business model off of what he's saying regardless like they've basically said that like yeah culture is essentially moribund like there's nothing new we can squeeze out of this like let's just cash it let's just cash out our chips from the last 40 or 50 years of hits and you know just write out the good times i guess i don't know like they're they're banking like as you point out that like people are still going to be listening to uh you know bob dylan in 40 years which they might be i mean who knows i, I don't know it's just I don't know. It's very very interesting. Yeah, I mean, that's you know I think that's one of the sort of disturb really disturbing aspects of this is that the song funds have sort of triggered this bidding war where the you know the the the, the major labels are now feeling like they they need to kind of lock down these big assets so they're they're sort of coming in and blowing everyone out of the water with these you know hundred three hundred million dollar deals for 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 Dylan and and, and Paul Simon and stuff like that and in some parallel universe that's like theoretically money that could could be being spent on on new music or even going to you know even going to like going to artists uh, god forbid so just the idea of this of, of an, an economy where all this all this money is is being is being spent on old songs i mean you know a lot of old songs i love as well but yeah um yeah it's 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 bleak you know not not just the sort of opportunity cost of that money but like once that money's been spent there is an incentive for 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 to generate a return on investment so like what are these people going to do like what what are they going to be prepared to do to try and get these songs in front of people try and get people listening to to all this old music what as you you pointed out in one of your articles like they've got like miley cyrus out there singing like you know heart of glass and like and then this just gets cycled back through the algorithm so that, like, every time you hit next on YouTube, like, you're going to get hit with a video of some newer artist singing an older song. Um, because it's because in some cases, you know, like, hypnosis have basically, uh, you know, they've incentivized that to, to be the case or, you know, like, have kind of got Miley to go out there and, and do it. Um, I mean, because she, she gets paid off of it, too, and it helps her. Um it's I don't know. It's very interesting. I mean, but another sort of important aspect of this is, and you close your article by talking about this, to the extent that new music is being created, it has resulted in this process that um, is, I, I think it was maybe another writer that used the term, but it's kind of like unbundling the song. Basically, like, to the extent that new music is being created, it... And sort of incentivizes like the catchiest hooks with like hooks that are instructive, like instructing you to do something like 
because then they can put that on a TikTok video and then that can get recirculated millions of times through these viral videos. So basically it's the kind of deconstruction of the song itself into just like little bite-sized, you know, bits of sugar, you know what I mean? That you can just sort of ingest and then like that, again, it gets like cycled back through the timelines and algorithms and everything. Um, I mean, it's called like, I guess hypnosis refers to it as its song management, or is it, or is that an entirely separate phenomenon? No, 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 not at all. So yeah, song song management is 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 like yeah, hypnosis is phrase for for how they're going to try and maximize the 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 value of the catalogs they bought. So it, it covers any, anything basically that they'll that any any avenue that they'll use to try and generate more revenue. So again, you know getting them placed in adverts, what's called sync in the in the industry, which is like getting songs in sort of films and, and, and TV and stuff like that. But another aspect of song management, I guess, is is trying to find some sort of new like kind of new ways of, of of licensing music and kind of new new sources of income. And yeah, it's it's a right called um, Sherry who 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 coined this term, um, the unbundled song. Like un- unbundling is describes what the effect that digital technologies have had on like lots of different industries. But like the music industry example is like what happened to the album after digitalization. So you know, rather than buying an entire album, you know, you you just get the songs you wanted from the file sharing site, or then later you know go on iTunes and and just you know for uh, ninety nine cents just just download the three tracks that you actually wanted to listen to. Uh, so, it, it, you know, the digital music took the old sort of uh, economic unit of the industry, which was the album, and then kind of broke it up with uh, disastrous effects for the, for, the, for the industry bottom line. So the the idea here is that that same process might, you know, might and kind of is being being applied to, to kind of songs themselves. And you, you sort of see it, like like you said, on on sort of platforms like like TikTok, that you know where the videos are sort of like fifteen, kind of thirty seconds long. So you need music that has the sort of that sort of build up and then drop structure within a kind of like fifteen second period, because that's what the content creators build their songs around. And you, I mean, you've seen this, you see this throughout throughout history. It's not like a new thing per se, like the. The medium always shapes like what kind of songs people can produce. Radio kind of helped to dictate like a sort of three, four minute pop song. Spotify's had its effects because I think it's like 30 seconds is the minimum amount of time that someone has to listen to a song before it, it uh, royalties pay out. So, you know, you've got 30 seconds to to to, to grab people's attention. Grab their attention, right. But I think this it's this you know this effect combined with the, the sort of funneling of all music basically into these platforms that's going to have this homogenizing effect because you know they're just very one size fit up fits all you know like spotify pays out royalties the same for you'll get the same royalties for like you know the like a skit on a rap album that you would for like a 20 minute long movement in a right. in a like a symphony symphony or whatever like, right so they have they have these these platforms have they they impose these sort of effects much more like violently than than the sort of older media forms. So you're saying like if you're making an album, the skit on the rap album needs to come back. Maybe you can get some more. I miss that man. We don't really. There's no. You really don't see skits, and then they just kind of got weaker over time. We need the Mad Rapper back from the Biggie albums and all that stuff. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's money. I don't understand. I don't understand it. It's it's money. So yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because earlier I said that this disincentivizes new music. I think hopefully by this point the listener will be able to see why that is. Because if you're um, a song fund like Hypnosis, it actually would devalue the overall value of your asset class so for example if new music is valued over old music the value of those catalogs that you have those assets that you have will be worth less and then you're not bringing in as much money to your shareholders and etc so like they are actually 
they want a situation where new music is not made. Um, well, that's not true. You guess you do need some degree of new music being made, but they want a situation where the older, the good times are what people, uh, you know, are listening to in, in trying to evoke more so than the future, I guess. They don't want, I guess they don't want music that's really like, uh, has the future as its sort of like creative horizon. I yeah. What, what, I mean, what's, what's really scary for them is, and I mean, I don't even know if, if you know, I, I, I think sort of culture has become so sort of fragmented and sort of siloed that, you know, something like this is, is not really possible, but like some sort of like big kind of cultural eruption that suddenly sort of devalues like all of the old music sort of like, you know, kind of like what, what sort of punk rock did to like Prague. Right. Or like any of these movements like rock and roll or, or punk or rap or anything, any of the kind of revolutionary changes in like creativity and artistry in the music industry that created these songs to begin with, they don't want that anymore because that would render their assets, you know, of less value. Yeah. And it, and it's not like, it's not like they're in a position to like stop, you know, stop that from happening but what i would say is that they the more catalog they acquire the more they become a kind of stakeholder in the industry and that's sort of how they're trying to position themselves as well you know they like like sort of Merck has this thing about about sort of positioning himself and the company as sort of like advocates for uh, songwriters who get who get a really shitty deal uh, from from streaming platforms it should be said yeah, so he's even he's even suggested that he's going to start a, a union for songwriters. Um, All right, man. The, the irony of which is, of course, that um, you know, like his greatest desire is to buy them out. So obviously, his his desire to sort of um, raise the, the the share that that a songwriter gets from the sort of the kind of music royalty pie. Is uh, is to to kind of boost the the value of the, the assets that he's bought, and there's a sort of incoherence in 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 th- that whole self presentation because he's very well served by the system which keeps songwriters kind of precarious because that makes them easier for him to 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 buy out. It's yeah, it's a very it's a very cynical uh, uh, framing of the situation. I think. Well, it's um. On this show, like we've we've kind of joked about how Dolly Parton is kind of a an interesting metaphor for the transformation of like work in the the neoliberal era. For example, you know, in 1980, you have her singing this song Nine to Five," right, which was like, um, you know, it tied to this movie, but it was also kind of this anthem about like workers' rights and everything. And then 40 years later, you have her singing Five to Nine, which is like an anthem for like the grinder, you know, hustle. Sad hustle, yeah. Yeah. Um, Hypnosis is kind of a similar story, a similar metaphor. You have them like, you know, the name anyways, like as a kind of like testament to the model or you know the album as the sort of like model economic unit of music and now you've got the new hypnosis the new iteration of it which is a testament to like the fragmentation of it and the monetization financialization of it as an asset <laughs> like like it's been completely stripped of all artistic value and integrity and it's just been completely you know, put into the financialized, uh, you know, churn, the mill, to squeeze as much out of it as possible. Just an interesting metaphor, I think. Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought of it that way, but yeah, it's deeply symbolic. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, well, I mean, I, so I think that, that probably about sums up our story here. I mean, Tom, did you have anything else you wanted to uh, explore? Any other... Out- well, I was curious since we... Since we uh, have uh, an Englishman on the on the horn here. During the pandemic, Rich, I, I watched uh, 24-Hour Party People probably like four or five times. It's just such a good movie. And, you know, there's the scene in there where somebody's coming to Tony Wilson uh, at all and saying to him, we want to buy Factory Records. 
we're willing to offer you like $2 million or something. And he has like this moment where he's like, I can't sell it to you. And, and the guy's like, why? He's like, well, I, I don't own it. Like all the artists kind of just, it seems to me like Tony Wilson was like, kind of like, uh, you know, what well, he was like a talk show host right in England. And then he kind of started factory and all that. And it seems like he was kind of a fan of the whole Manchester scene and just kind of gave like Sean Ryder and happy Mondays and whoever else was on the label, just money to make their projects and just ended up losing a bunch of money, but he never like really owned the masters or anything like that. Like how does us like, I guess in all of your reporting on this, like, is there sort of a, um, could you have a label in 2022 or something that was like, like the early factory where, uh, you had like artists, I guess, like some sort of way that it could be a, both a viable label and pay artists, you know, uh, uh, commensurate with what they're bringing in and also, like, re- while also retaining, I guess, some ownership of their masters. Is that anything y'all have thought about? Uh, I mean, I don't know. If, I don't know if there are still people out there, you know, signing record contracts in blood and um, right. uh, <laughs> uh, and and stuff like that. I I I so it's so hard to imagine someone like Tony Wilson surviving in 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 2020, uh, 2022. I mean, there, there are still there are still independent labels, and independent labels have always had business models that that take better care of of artists. So, you know, artists on on indie labels will get a, a they'll get a bigger royalty split, and you know, they might there might be a provision in the contract so that they they get their rights back after a after a a, a certain period of time. So. The, the the independent like label business model is 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 still still viable and it's still there. It's just that they they have to exist within a system that's designed by you know by the the, the big global corporations and that's 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 always been the case. And like any like any kind of um, sort of capitalist economy, the, the the big actors are always trying to squeeze the space that the the kind of independent actors have to, to operate in, but it just the structures that we've that we've been like talking about for the last hour or so have have, have made that even more difficult. Really, I mean, there's some pretty interesting stuff going on with. I mean, it's <laughs> bizarre to say, but like with the UK government at the moment, which has been running this kind of uh, investigation into the modern music economy. So they they did a big report last year, and and they sort of commissioned the this body called the kind of Competition and Markets Authority to do a sort of investigation into, uh, you know, whether the the music industry is like a quote unquote healthy market, and and as part of that, they sort of solicited responses from lots of different stakeholders in the industry, and they they've been published, um, and they're I mean they're really interesting. So you know. I, Anyone who's who's kind of interested on in like learning a bit about this stuff from the sort of the, the inside, I'd, I'd, I'd say go to the go to the CMA website and have a look at that because you you get the you get the sort of like self serving narratives from the major labels, but you also get perspectives from kind of independent labels. You get like submissions by campaign groups, as the the uh, union of uh, musicians and allied workers who have been running a campaign to try and extract better terms from spotify for the last few years there's a group called uh, a, a sort of a campaign called broken record in this company in this country that's been sort of advocated for advocating for to sort of changes in the law there there are you know there are like actually sort of relatively like simple legal changes that that, that can be made that, that that would make a difference if there's the political will and 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 the strong enough movements out there to, to advocate for them well on that note um rich i just want to thank you for your time um and thank you for your writing uh if you want to read more from rich like i said go to the baffler thebaffler.com anything else you'd like to plug yeah i've got i've uh, got some stuff in the real life tech website um i'm on twitter was it at at richwoodall underscore I, I i don't i don't tweet much but uh you know I should probably get back around to at least like, you know, plug in my own, my own stuff. Um, uh, so, uh, so just, just get on TikTok. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, exclusively uh, hypnosis owns content. Uh, um, TikTok, TikTok right. channel. Yes. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I, I mean, if you yeah, if you want to, if you want to, kind of learn more about the the sort of modern music economy, yeah, read read uh, read Damon Krakowski, the 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 Dada drummer. Uh, Substack, I think it's called. Um, uh, read uh, the the Penny Fractions newsletter. Um, read Liz Pelly. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, you know, I, I, as 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 fans of music, I think you know the the least we can do is is educate ourselves um, on uh, just the, <laughs> the the truly insane shit that's being perpetrated in the. Uh, in the, the modern music industry definitely um i think that's a good uh message to go out on um thanks again rich we really appreciate it uh we'd love to have you back on sometime uh and hopefully things stay sunny over there you know hopefully you guys don't get another bout of that cloudy rainy weather we're all the time hearing about over here <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure thanks thanks for having yeah, me thanks rich thanks again rich for you